Hi everyone, I'm Summer. I'm Carrie. And this is Hopoxia Podcast. Join us to talk about sex, drugs, and self-improvement. Psychopathy is a neurodevelopmental disorder, and the time to treat a neurodevelopmental disorder is in childhood. If you don't identify them before they are three, you are too late. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying like too late in the sense that like, you know, nothing can ever be done. Right. But you have missed that optimal window mm-hmm. of the least amount of fuckery for everybody. Um, right. You know, I mean, it's, it is absolutely ridiculous because all of the experts, every single person who, you know, is in the realm of psychopathy that I've ever talked to or read, and I've read hundreds of neuroscience research papers on this. I've read, you know, just about every book out there on it, right? Like I, I read a ton on this stuff and everybody says early intervention, early intervention, mm-hmm. early intervention. And instead what the clinicians say is, well, I don't want to label them. I don't want to label it. Yeah. And I think part of it is we don't have an understanding. I mean, we can't even convince people <laughs> that this is neurodevelopmental, right? And right. so there's not, so like my daughter was really in an ideal scenario as far as should have been able to identify and provide intervention in that she was born into the foster care system like I we were already fostering her older sister so she now she did go home with 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 her mother from the hospital they had parenting supports in that house they were seeing her every day that they were being monitored so there's not there's not been any evidence of abuse or neglect in those sure. in that time frame. Doesn't mean it's not possible, but you know. But those those um, behaviors that she was like you know, exhibiting like the she like she was a quote unquote good baby, right? She never cried. She did. She wanted to just sit over in the corner, and she didn't want to interact with anybody. Like the first time mm. my then husband met her she was I believe three months old which is a time you know they're, they're usually looking at your face and they're kind of interacting she didn't want to do any of that mm. um, even that early but because even people who are supposed to be trained for child development and child safety didn't realize that the, to recognize these things as okay these are indicators that maybe we need to be looking at things and I had been pointing them out because I was, I had, uh, I just, you know, researched a lot. And before I um, certified as a foster home, I had um, connected with tons of people about, um, you know, in the adoption world and all that back in the day of message boards before social media existed. Right. Um, and so I knew about RAD, right? Reactive attachment mm. disorder. So I wanted to make sure because I'm like, you guys are monitoring them. So there may be, a possibility of removing her, like we need to make sure, you know, we're doing everything we can to make sure that we don't cause these, you know, these disruptions, you know, as few as possible to develop Brad. Um, Which later when she was removed, it wasn't even something related to her. It was, you know, an arrest unrelated that made her mother unavailable for her care. Um, Can, can we actually, can we address Rad for a second here? Sure. And so, because I don't know who's who's coming to the podcast with what knowledge. Um, 
so do you do you want to explain what rad is or do you want me to? Um, either way. I think I've explained it multiple times on the podcast. Okay. So if you want to go for it, I'll sure. let you do it. Okay. So RAD stands for reactive attachment disorder. And um, there are a bunch of symptoms, but this is a really, really key point that I'm about to make. And this is something that I, you know, I really, really need parents to understand. You can only get reactive attachment disorder if, or the child, I guess, can only get this, if there was a break in caregiving between nine months of age and five years. That's it. Um, you can't have this any other way. Um, and I cannot tell you how many clinicians have diagnosed children with reactive attachment disorder who are in the homes of their biological mother from whom they have never been away. So what are they like, reacting to? Right? Because right. that's the whole point. It's reactive. It's supposed to be, you know, because right. of that um, trauma. And that's the right. thing when my daughter first, when she came to live with me, she was five years old. Um, first thing I did was got her involved, you know, uh, in intake for the therapist. Um, because, you know, I'm seeing behaviors that are not, <laughs> not um, typical. But it was, she always pretended to be happy and things like that. I'm like, this isn't normal. Right. There's not a normal range of emotion here. So let's look at this. And that was the first thing they did was diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder, um, which I get, right? Because you just assume <laughs> because she's in care and all of that. But the reality is her behaviors and her symptoms pre far predated yeah. when she changed caregivers at two years old. Yeah. And that's something, by the way, that is, I was actually thinking about that last night too, is how many, um, you know, how many people that's true for, right? Like, and thinking, you know, about trauma and stuff, because the, the impetus is to always blame this on trauma. Mm -hmm. And um, side note, sort of interrupting myself here, I have to say it drives me absolutely batty when you know these websites or experts or whatever they always start you're like what causes conduct disorder abuse and trauma and then mm -hmm. sometimes nothing causes it i'm like great so if anybody can get it and it has nothing to do with trauma you, you can't say trauma creates this and then sometimes it happens to people who has no trauma like right what like how does that even make any sense and you know, at all. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, but back to, um, you know, the reactive attachment disorder, like they're, oh, right. That's what it is. So there are so many people, right, where there are, um, you know, there might be a trauma or something, you know, not ideal, whatever that comes along when they're you know, three, four, five, six, whatever, you know, what have you, but their behaviors were there before that trauma ever happened, yet the adults around them will still blame their behaviors on the trauma. And that's, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's and I'm guilty. ridiculous. And I'm guilty. I attributed a lot of her behaviors as she was older 
when, you know, once she moved in with me and she's school-aged, I attributed a lot of that to trauma, you know, and the disruption yeah. in the system involvement because mm-hmm. I, I didn't understand that those, the connection between those behaviors in infancy and toddlerhood right. with, because I wasn't educated on how that develops and what, you know, what that looks like as it's developing. And um, in some ways I probably, um, because I know I defended a lot of the things she did because, uh, like at school and things like that in talking to the teachers. I'm like, yeah, but there's this trauma. And so she's going to react this way. And so yeah. we're all approaching it from this trauma position thinking, well, if we can just, you know, <laughs> do, give, yeah. give the supports for the trauma, it's going to fix. And because of that, they didn't necessarily do like law enforcement referrals or, or things like that, where right. maybe they should have, you know, it might have, you know, been able to help us access, you know, get that judge to order some tre- intervention. Um, but because we were approaching it from the standpoint of this is the result of her trauma, which as we found out later, as she got older, she didn't even identify those things as, tra- as traumatic. So. Right. right. I mean, it's. That's something that I don't think. So people don't think about that aspect of trauma, right? That two people can go through the exact same thing. One of them comes out traumatized and the other is completely unfazed. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's just, it's not something that we talk about at all. Right. Because we think of things as, I, I think it's that we want things to be clear cut, right? This, that, you know, A, B, C, and D events are traumatic events. Well, no. Right. Trauma is when, you know, our nervous system is overwhelmed and say, you know, I can go through something and it not be traumatic. Same, you know, the next person might go through it and it's horrifically traumatic or the other way around. It's not this bright line like we want to think it is. No, it's, it's really not. I mean, it's like nobody ever takes a baseline before, you know, there was a, a study that was done in a, an emergency room. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they did um, was they did uh, skin conductance tests on each of the people who had come through the ER who had just been subjected to some sort of trauma. And they were able to predict with a scary amount of accuracy for science who was going to end up having PTSD and who was not. Oh, wow based on how their, their skin conducted the electricity. You know, I mean, people don't, people don't really stop to think about that, like that aspect from like, oh my God, blah, 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 A, B, C, or D is so traumatizing. Well, for some people. Right. For other people, it might not be. Um, you know, I have... Oh yeah, actually, I think we we talked about this, right? Mm-hmm. Like Summer, you and I could go up on stage in front of a bajillion people and give a talk about something, and we would be fine. If we made Carrie get up and get on that stage, she would come. She would come away right. be so traumatized because she'd be like, "I didn't mm-hmm. want to." You know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. oh my right. god! Like, it's all so individual and so subjective, and people want to 
They really just want to. Actually, you know what? The damnedest thing just occurred to me. What? We don't want to label anything. We don't want to label children, but we'll label everything trauma. Like right. what? How, how how do you not want to label children, but you want to label trauma? Well, I think right. part of it comes to the, you know, the stigma. That's what I keep hearing is you can't use that word. I, I get I get comments all the time on TikTok about how I shouldn't be using the term psychopathy because of the stigma. And I'm like, do you realize that every person she has mistreated, like, they feel that way because of her actions, not because it was called psychopathy, right? Like, but we need to start being honest about what this stuff is and calling it conduct disorder doesn't change no. what we're dealing with. We're talking about things in euphemisms instead of addressing and looking Agree. at. And we need to, like you mentioned earlier, not all people with psychopathy are violent, not all yeah. engage in criminal activity. And because of that, which we'll talk about it on another episode, you know, when we talk about the diagnostic paradigm, but right now there is only diagnoses a diagnosis for people who are engaging in that criminal activity, which means we're only looking at that group instead of the entire spectrum. How are we supposed to understand something, let alone develop diagnostics or interventions for them when right. you're ignoring a huge chunk of that population? Right. I mean, and, and the, thing, the other point I would make too is if we wait until they're violent, it's too late. It's too right? late, right. Like don't, know. No, mm -hmm. it's like, I don't know. I was going to come up with some snazzy analogy, but that <laughs> didn't happen. Well, and I think that's one important thing, you know, we've been talking about why it's important to talk about, but this is a public health issue, really. Like oh, socially, the social impact is huge. I know the, the fact sheet on psychopathy is, um, says people with which of course we'll go over statistics more later but the one that I always always sticks in my head is people with psychopathy are responsible for 30 to 40 percent of violent crimes which is a which is a big number when you consider people with psychopathy yeah. are a small portion of the population like 70 percent of people have no traits of psychopathy at all I thought mm. According well, to that, that's from that fact sheet. I'm not, I am not a researcher. I did not come up with those numbers. Sure. <laughs> and we'll look at those deeper later. But, but yeah, yeah, we're still talking it relative to the whole population. It's a small portion. It's not a tiny portion. It's big enough. We need to pay attention. Yeah. But like per capita, those that are engaging in violence are responsible for a big amount of the violence that we're ex experiencing societally yeah. we can't keep pretending yeah. it's not happening or oh we're just addressing it one individual at a time no no yeah i mean it's and there are a whole bunch of reasons why we don't address it which we'll address on on later mm -hmm. episodes of the podcast for sure um but i mean and it's Unfortunately, when we sort of focus on this one demographic, and I, I completely understand um, why we have focused on the criminal demographic. Um, there, there are a number of reasons. Um, and the first and probably most important of which is they're a captive audience, right? right? Um, and so typically speaking, people with psychopathy do not participate in um, research. 
right? Like there's what's in it for them? Nothing. Right. And uh, I mean, it's as an aside, I mean, and I understand why the IRB exists and I understand that they have to like, you know, they definitely like you need to to have some sort of oversight on what the experiment is and what the research is. And, you know, I mean, like even even with, um, you know, even with like fMRI stuff, you still have to like have this informed consent, even though there's, you know, mm-hmm. almost zero chance anybody could ever get hurt laying there in an, in a, in an MRI. Like it's not, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, okay, if you had some metal and you didn't know that, sure, that, that could go poorly, but that's, you know, sort of normal. Like you, we have to get um, IRB approval for answering a bunch of questions on a piece of paper or, you know, computer right. screen. And so I understand that, but, you know, and I understand why we shouldn't, under normal conditions, um, incentivize this kind of research for the participants to the point where they might submit to something that could cause them harm, right? But on the other hand, when you're dealing with an entire population whose main battle cry is what's in it for me, why don't you make it worth their while and then we can study them? right? Like they're very, very transactional and we want them not to be that way in order to figure out how to, how to not, you know, have them not be that way. We need to give a little, right? We need to get into that transactional sort of a thing. And I mean, I'm, this is a little flippant and tongue in cheek, but like, you know, you could be like, Hey kids, would you, you know, participate in this research? We'll get, you'll, you'll, you'll get a free va- a gaming system. And then I'll be like, yeah, I'll do it. Right. Um, but there has to be when you're dealing with a population that is, um, you know, historically uh, altruism averse. Right? right. Like, why why would they do that sort of thing? And we do need the research and we do need stuff to to happen. But I think, even you know, even before that, people need to understand the reality. People need to understand that you know, kids come out this way. They just do. Uh, there was a recent study done by Rebecca Waller and her team at, at UPenn. And um, I'm going to grossly, uh, um, you know, sort of be reductive about the study rather than trying to kind of go into the nitty gritty of it. But essentially what they found is, and they started following these parents when they were um, during the gestational period. And so they were, you know, looking at prenatal stuff and then they, they followed the cohort, the whole cohort all the way on to three years of age. And the fMRI results at one year of age were predicted of, were predictive of callous unemotional traits at three or said another way. And I should, you know, like, basically it's kind of proof positive that this is a biological thing, right? This is how they came out. And we're, we're never supposed to say a child was born that way. Like, heaven forbid. I mean, and, you know, I think... I'm more, <laughs> yeah, like, I used the phrase too. born with psychopathy on one of the TikTok videos when I was talking about my daughter. And woohoo, I made people angry. TikTok oh, ones. no. They, my, they were in my comments. <laughs> well, okay. Has exhibited 
oh, nobody's born this way. You're lying. You're a terrible person. You must have done something to her. And I'm like, okay, do you prefer the phrasing has exhibited symptoms since birth? Because she has. <laughs> and then, no, people were not happy with that either. And uh, started calling me a psychopath and a narcissist. And it, yeah, it was, yeah, it was a fun weekend. But yeah, you know, this is, this is a perfect point, I think, at which to segue into, um, one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about the the case about the murder of, of Jamie mm-hmm. Bolger. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because so many people like, well, if you're going out and speaking publicly about your childhood did this, clearly you are a narcissist and you just want all this attention, right? Like that's that's what they, they right. say and think and feel. I mean, I lost friends over you know, how I shouldn't be talking about this because it's personal. No, I'm talking about this because nobody else is talking about it. And I'm tired of cleaning up the mess, right? Like I'm tired of humanity losing amazing people because they were murdered. I'm tired of, you know, drain, like people being sick because they've been, you know, in a house with somebody with psychopathy and their health has failed, right? Like there's so (laughs) much damage that are done. I mean, and I do have to say, right. The other thing is what's the impact of bullying in childhood, right? That has long-term impacts on Mm -hmm. the, you know, on future, not future generations, but you know, their whole lives. Right. And you can't, it's not the diet, the damage cannot be undone. Right. I mean, we, I did, I, I love to do polls asked, you know, on average, how many victims does your child have in any given time period? Um, and I, gosh, I mean, I think the like six to six to twelve victims per, you know, yeah. per. It was either year or month. I mean, it was just it was an insane number, though, right? It's like sometimes, sometimes those things measure, you know, in days, right? And you know, like you guys were saying, it's it's something that we don't we don't deal with until it's somebody who isn't living under the same roof as the family, mm-hmm. right? Nobody cares until it happens to them, and it's. You know, this is a problem. It has always been a problem and it will always remain a problem. And one of the things that I thought was really, really interesting about um, the, the the manner in which John Venable's mother and Robert Thompson's mother were treated, so Ann Thompson and Susan Venables, um, one of them, and oh, by the way, super interesting fun fact, um, if you if you knew all of the facts of that case, and I were to tell you that one of those children would grow up to continue to be a public safety problem, you would probably never guess which one. Hint, it's not the one who grew up in the bad neighborhood getting the tar beat out of him every day. Right. Turns out he actually grew up kind of okay. It was the other guy who, you know, had the the parents from the so- higher socioeconomic status and, you know, 
and that poor mother of Jamie Bolger, like she she has to keep like going to the media and being like, this guy is dangerous. He's dangerous. He's dangerous. He's dangerous. I mean, he's he was caught with, uh, I think, thousands of um, child sex abuse material things, and it just yeah, it's not it has not gone well for for him. But during the trial, and I really wish I could. I really wish I I had um taken either taken notes or at least noted which where I heard this like what the name of the program was or whatever I, just, I saw it a couple of years back so I don't and I watch a lot of stuff about you know sort of in the realm of psychopathy so I you know sometimes I can't necessarily remember every single thing off the top of my head as to where I found it but one of the there was somebody who would was talking about that and he was saying that um during the during the trial of the two boys and this is this is what I was looking for last night I was trying to find um because I wanted I couldn't remember which mother got which treatment and I wanted to be clear about that um so I might have the moms flip-flopped but um I think I think it was um Susan Venables who was the more put together and Ann Thompson who was the less put together one um but anyway it doesn't matter one one of the mothers right did what you're I mean at least from my perspective if you have a court date, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to dress up, um, you know, not like dress up, put on a ball gown, but like you wear professional clothing. You, you know, you make sure your hair is brushed and, you know, dressing in such a way that you are telegraphing to the judge and the jury that you are taking this very seriously, right? If you show up like in baggy sweats with stains all over them, that's not, you know, that's not a good look. Um, so during the the trial, these two mothers, they're both excoriated by the press. I mean, just just so bad, so badly. Um, and I'm sure people are going to comment. People are going to comment and be like, "Well, one of the boys went through this. One of the boys went through that. And this mother did this. This mother did that." I'm like, okay, fine. I'm not going to dispute any of the facts of you know the um, maltreatment. Um, that happened in, in both boys' lives. Um, you know, and I'm not trying to minimize that, but regardless of what happened with the boys, right? I mean, first of all, I don't even think anybody knew the, like, I don't think the press necessarily knew the, the things that the parents, you know, did to sort of, you know, traumatize. And I'm, I'm, you know, air quoting, air quoting, traumatize, um, you know, because like we talked about you, trauma is a very, you know, personally subjective thing. And so, and some, some of the boys, one of the boys, um, oh my God. I mean, like, I think he was like, he was, he was truant at a really young age. He was pulling the heads off of pigeons, just pop snapping them off. I mean, you know, this happened at a really young age. Um, but when the mothers appeared in court, and again, I don't think we had any of the family history at this point, the mother who had done her makeup and, you know, made an effort to look nice. At one point she was being interviewed by the, the person on camera and she started crying. And so she <gasps> gasp, took a moment to fix her makeup because her mascara was running. 
And immediately, oh, look at what an attention seeker she is. Look at what a narcissist is. Like she is, all she cares about is how she looks on camera. Oh my God, I can't believe she's fussing with her makeup. And I mean, that's something a lot of us would do without even thinking. And have these big black streaks. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's actually, that is an excellent point. I didn't even think of that. You're right. It would be completely reflex Mm -hmm. to us. I mean, it's, Wow, good call. I didn't even... Especially if you wear makeup all the time. Right. I mean, I, mean I, I, I do that just like be... if my... Yeah. You wouldn't even necessarily think it through. You just do it out of reflex. But they called her a narcissist for that? I don't remember if it was... Uh, I don't remember if they actually used the word narcissist, but it definitely, like, all she cares about is how she looks on camera. She's getting off on the publicity... Wow you know all of that stuff like really like and and here's here's the messed up thing right if she had not blotted away the mascara and instead had these streaks they would have immediately said she doesn't care about her appearance at all Mm -hmm. you know which is like it's damned if you do damned if you're down and then right you know the other mom who was not as well put together it was you know she's a slovenly Un, uh, unengaged parent who can't be bothered to, you know, look decent for court, right? I mean, it didn't matter right. what these women did. They were wrong just for, you know, being women. They didn't go after the dads as far as I know, right? It was... Oh, it's always the always mother, ain't it? Yeah. Yeah, always. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel. And to be sure you never miss an upload, make sure you turn your notifications on. And please come join us on social media so we can continue these conversations in between episodes. You'll find us at Hypoxia Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok.